Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Carrie Stewart Parks is an internationally recognised forensic artist, as well as being the creator of the award-winning Gwen Marcy Suspense Series, featuring an FBI-trained forensic artist who's always being pulled out of her studio into life and death action. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Carrie Parks is talking about writing inspirational suspense. But before we hear from Carrie, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode are available at the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Carrie's website and books, as well as a free ebook and information on how to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Carrie. Hello there, Carrie. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Jenny, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Look, Carrie, you're obviously a very talented artist. You give forensic art workshops, and you've written several how-to-paint-and-draw instruction books. So what was the once-upon-a-time moment or, or process that led you to express yourself through writing rather than pencil and paint? Well, the original writing I did were how-to books, and I decided I really needed to put down what I taught my students in a book rather than have to explain it over and over and over again. So I ended up with my husband, Rick, writing and illustrating five different books on how to draw and how to watercolor paint. And I thought that all I could do was to write nonfiction, to write, um, here's how you sharpen your pencil. And eventually I moved over into writing novels. But it wasn't until I had been writing nonfiction books for a number of years that I ended up in this place. Yeah, and the novels are, are quite different from the nonfiction. So how did was there something that just led you to make that jump? Yes, it was very strange. <laughs> I, uh, I have a girlfriend that has absolutely everything. And every year I'd spend all year looking for the just the perfect Christmas gift for her. Well, this one year I just couldn't find anything. And we were getting closer and closer to Christmas. And I finally decided, well, maybe I'll just write a, a little short story about an adventure between two people. And um, so I wrote about these two gals that went on this adventure, this murder mystery kind of a thing, and gave it to her at Christmas. Well, she would read it, well, she'd be reading every night in bed, and she'd be laughing out loud, and her husband kept saying, well, what are you reading? And she said, well, this, this really funny short story, and she read it out loud to her husband. And he called me up the next day, and he said, I want to come over to your house. And I said, Okay. And he came over and he said, I think you actually have writing talent. I think you can actually write fiction and I will teach you how to write fiction better. Well, the gal that I gave it to was Barbara Peretti and the man that came over was her husband, Frank Peretti. So for the next 
eight years, the Dean of Christian Fiction was my personal mentor. That's just wonderful. I, I was going to ask you a little later in the show how, because I'm aware that Frank did become a bit of a mentor for you, but I wasn't quite sure how that had happened. That's that's a wonderful story. <laughs> <laughs> now, Gwen is obviously quite similar to you in many ways. For a start, she's a forensic artist, but I'm sure there's lots of ways in which you're also very different. Would you like to just expand a little on those similarities and differences? Sure. Uh, Gwen Marcy is a breast cancer survivor, as I am. She has a Great Pyrenees dog, which I have a whole bunch of. Uh, she has a sense of humor, which I have in abundance. And she's a forensic artist, a freelance forensic artist. So in those ways, she's like me. She is divorced, which I was divorced. I'm remarried now, happily remarried, to a lovely man who teaches with me. She has a... 14, in the start of the series, she has a 14-year-old daughter who's just horrible. She's acting out in every way possible. And I have no children, but I based the horribleness of her daughter on what I was like when I was her age. So it was pretty easy to imagine just how awful you can be to your parents. Um, she is uh, much younger than me, uh, and she's much slimmer, though at that age I was probably closer to her in weight, but um, I think she's more, um, she's independent, which is like me, but I think in many ways she's not as secure, and um, I'm pretty comfortable in my shoes, size 10. <laughs> There's a couple of other very interesting talents that she has, and I wondered if you shared those. One of them is that she has a close to photographic memory. Do you do you have that kind of ability to instantly recall things? Oh, I do. I just keep forgetting to put the film in. Um, <laughs> I would, <laughs> no, I, I'm very good. I can tell you why you remember, why you forget, but it doesn't make me any better than anybody else. She's also good at detecting deception, which is one of the things I teach to my law enforcement students. So I did incorporate that particular training and background that I have into Gwen. Yes, I see you do workshops titled Don't Lie to Me, which, uh, and it's quite fascinating in the books how you will go sometimes through a little checklist of two or three things that the person's done that makes Gwen think, oh, well, that's a lie or that's the truth. So that's fascinating. I, I actually loved that there was a TV series, I think, called Don't Lie to Me, which I was absolutely fascinated with. So I, I find that part of it really interesting. It did. And that was actually a very good television show. It had a lot of really valid information and I loved it also. And then they took it off the air. Yeah, I was, I was disappointed it didn't keep going. Um, but it obviously would be very useful in your line of work. So A Cry from the Dust, which was the first book in the Gwen Marcy series, won the suspense thriller category in the 2015 American Christian Writers Awards, that must have been a confirmation that you were on the right track. And I wonder, was that also the thing that nudged you into turning it into a series or had you thought of it as a series right from the start? I had pitched it as a th uh, series to Thomas Nelson. And A Cry from the Dust was actually the second book that I wrote. The first one I wrote came out second, the one called The Bones Will Speak. Uh, I worked on that one. That was my learning curve book. And that was the one I worked on for eight years. 
I got an agent, tried to sell it. Nobody wanted it. I put it aside and because I had already had this idea for the second one, A Cry from the Dust. So I was working on that one. That's the one that I pitched. I got a new agent and I pitched Nelson. And when they said yes to the series, then I went back to the second book, which is the first book, which is not set. Oh, well, you get it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the one that comes in number two. Yes. One that comes in number two, which was really written number one. I reread what I had written and it was truly awful. I was so grateful that thing did not sell. It was it was a terrible book. And I just threw it back on the drawing board. I think I kept one chapter and a couple of people and otherwise completely revamped it. And it came out as the second. And then the third in the series, which is the one that just won the Carol Award again this year, um, When Death Draws Near, um, was the third in the series. And then I got a two-book contract which produced the fourth in this series, which is the one that's just out now, uh, Portrait of Vengeance. Yeah, and that's also won an award, I think, has it? Or is that is that that's the third one that's just won the award? Yeah, the third one won the award. All three of my books have finaled in the Christie Awards. And uh, the I don't know if the third one has actually won a Christie because that won't be announced until November 9th. But it's pretty intimidating because I'm up against such authors as Terry Blackstock um, and Ted Decker and people like that. And it's a little, well, no, it's not a little. It's really intimidating. So, in fact, at the Carol Awards this year, I was so convinced my book wouldn't win against my competition that I'd taken my dress shoes off, my sparkly little sandaly shoes, and I took them off and kicked them under the table, knowing I wouldn't go up on the podium. And of course, they called my name. There was no way. It took me half an hour to get those shoes on in the first place. There was no way I was going to get my shoes on to go up and take that award. So I just carried my shoe up to show them that I actually had shoes and accepted the award with the shoe in my hand. You do have a sense of humor. Gwen, Gwen in the series is always drawn into the action. She's certainly not just an artist who sits behind her desk quietly drawing in a studio or, or, or making these cast, plaster cast heads. Is that typical of your work as well as a forensic artist? Well, it would definitely would be much more exciting if it were. Uh, we do occasionally get involved in areas um, beyond just what they bring us in on. They may, for example, have us go out on a crime scene and sketch it. Um, there was one time when I did the drawing and they took me into, a, the police department took me into a back room and I was sitting there talking and they brought this guy in and they made him stand right there and they were talking to him and then they nudged me and said, is that the guy you just drew? I was like, what are you putting him in the room with me. It's the same guy. Uh, so on occasion, uh, another time I was locked in a prison cell with a guy who had murdered two people with a baseball bat and a screwdriver. And I really didn't want to know how he used them. But um, so occasionally you, you end up in rather exciting circumstances, but it's very easy if you put your, your protagonist like Gwen into a small police department where one person does a lot of different tasks, they could end up in more circumstances than they normally would. Yes, sure. I understand what you're saying there. Yeah, yeah. 
You mentioned that you've got Thomas Nelson as your publisher, obviously one of the biggest Christian publishers, but readers don't have to share your faith to be able to enjoy your books. Anybody will enjoy the suspense. Um, I just wonder, is that a fine line that you walk between having a Christian-based pub publisher and making sure that you've got general interest in your stories? It is. I'm, I'm very blessed in that Thomas Nelson, um, which is a subsidiary of HarperCollins Christian, is the most, shall we say, I'm going to put quotes around this, liberal, which is really not liberal, um, of all of the mainstream, all of the bigger Christian publishers. Um, in that, uh, I have no problem with their wanting me to not have any um, bad language, which I don't use unless I maybe hit my thumb with a hammer or something. And then, you know, sometimes frogs slip out of your mouth. Um, <laughs> for the most part, there's no, well, not for the most part, there is no cussing in the book, which bothers me when I'm reading a book. I don't want to read those words when I'm enjoying the suspense. The second thing that we don't put in them is uh, sex. Um, though I have gone out on a limb, I just want to warn you, in the book that I just turned in, uh, there is a kiss. Yes, it is an epic kiss. So that's <laughs> that's my very first kiss that I've ever written into a book. But And it's because uh, cuss words and sex does not move the storyline unless it's an erotic book. Uh, sex and cussing stops it and just plays off one little corner. People are there. They want to solve the mystery. They want to come to the end. They want to have that heart-pounding excitement of reading the story. And so I have absolutely no problem. And I don't think anybody that is a mainstream thriller reader would have a problem with anything I've written. Now, the first three, no, four books, there is um, a moral in the story. And, but I was a Unitarian Universalist for 22 years, and I truly understand the unchurched and the atheistic and the agnostic mindset. And so I tried to write it in such a way that I would reach people like I used to be, because I want them to read what I write and say, okay, well, I can go along with that. I can, I can agree with that. Because you can't beat somebody into a faith and you can't, well, I guess some people try to beat you into a faith, but you can't abuse people into a faith. You can't beat them over the head with it, but you can present um, the Christian message in such a way that they would go, well, you know, that makes sense. That that works. And in absolutely no way am I preaching. That's the one thing I, I make sure in reading my reviews. There's no preachiness. There's no... Um, over, I'm going to, salvation message or anything else. There's other books that have that in it. Mine are just a really good adventure story. Moving on to more general, in more general terms, to talking a little about your career, I just wonder how you fit writing into what is already a very active life. And obviously, you've been disciplining yourself to do this writing for many years. I mean, we've just seen four books come out since 2015, but you obviously started quite a long time before that. I gather that you're based in a at home in a ranch in northern Idaho and that you travel 
to give law enforcement instruction and workshops on forensic art. How do you manage it all? And do you have to do quite a bit of traveling? I do a fair amount of traveling. Uh, when I travel, I try to use it as a working situation. And so therefore, um, I might be researching a book or reading up on something, or I might actually be writing as I travel. Um, I get up in the morning, every morning after my devotionals, I will write for several hours. I set a writing goal of how many words I want to accomplish. I work technically seven days a week, uh, but everything is, you know, I discipline myself to do that. Uh, unfortunately, my house dogs don't find my discipline to be their discipline. So their request to go outside, which happens often, does not necessarily work in with my typing. So they may be, I may be right in the middle of this scene of great chaotic crashing thunder, everything's going going south and one of the dogs will have to go outside. So I just set it up. Okay, I need to accomplish this goal by this time. I need to get ready for the class. I need to do this this day. I am a consummate list maker. I write copious lists of things I have to accomplish and then I cross them out so that I make sure I'm getting the things done I need to in a timely manner. Sure. And you mentioned the dogs. And of course, in the Gwen Marcy series, Winston, the great Pyrenees mountain dog, um, features quite prominently in, in all the stories. Um, I gather that you've actually got a, a kennel for great Pyrenees dogs. How many dogs do you personally have in the house? I have three dogs in the house and three in the kennel right now, which is about all I can handle. My girlfriend and I own dogs together. She lives about, oh, she's about three to four hours away from me. So we trade dogs back and forth. So she has about six or seven, about the same as I do. And um, I do the showing and she does the breeding and whelps out the puppies. And uh, we buy dogs together. Um, but they are, I've had Pyrenees since I was eight years old, um, my parents had a kennel before me, so we've been in Pyrenees since 1959. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Have you won any trophies? <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm now an AKC junior handling dog show judge uh, and right just got off the board of the Great Pyrenees Club of America, where I was president for five years. Oh, fantastic. So if, is there one thing in your writing career more than any other that you would think has been the secret to your success? Uh, there's actually a couple things. First of all, um, it's, it's very hard because your story is your baby and you have to put it out there and let people beat up on your baby. So you have to develop very thick skin. You have to be flexible. Um, when I first gave Frank my writing, uh, the, the book I was working on, he said, well, this is pretty good. But he said, you don't kill anybody until the third chapter. And I said, well, yeah, it takes me three chapters to get over there. And he said, no, no, you got you to gotta have a body in the first chapter. I said, I, can't, I don't know how to put a body in the first chapter. He says, you got to work on it. You got to get that body in the first chapter. Well, I just couldn't see how to do it. So I, I was very inflexible. 
So I worked and worked and worked, and I finally got the body into the second chapter, and I was very proud of that. And he said, no, no, I want that body in the first chapter. In fact, I want the body on the first page. And so one of the things I had to learn was to be very flexible. This wasn't the only way that I could express the story that was in my head. I had to learn that there were, there were different ways that I could express the same story and do it so more effectively. Um, I had to plow through in spite of the rejections and the setbacks and so on. And when I started writing, uh, one month after Frank told me he would help me to learn to write, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and my mother was dying of emphysema. And so through that year, while I was going through surgery and chemo and taking care of my dying mother, the, the writing, I think, helped keep me sane. And so I just kept with it, but I stayed with it. I kept learning. And that's the next thing I would say is that you never stop learning because everything that you do, you need to examine it and see is, are you doing it really the best you can do it? Because there's something else you can learn. And I'm finding that just the longer I'm in the field, the more I have to learn. And it's fascinating. Turning to a little bit of a sort of a fun question, and that is uh, one of the things I like about your books is the settings are in really out-of-the-way places that you don't usually read about, certainly not as a New Zealander, and I think a lot of Americans too. Um, if you were going to organise a magical mystery literary tour for any of your books or all of your books, have you got thoughts about where you would suggest people would go? Well, we actually research it by going to the places that are in the books. So the book, the first book, A Cry from the Dust, uh, we went to the Mormon History Museum and researched it yes. there. We were on our way to Mountain Meadows to see the Mountain Meadows uh, site when our car developed car trouble and we couldn't go all the way. Um, when we did the second book, the second book was based where I live, right there in North Idaho, and as it was really quite closely based on a number of my cases. So that would put you in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and uh, you would probably drive past where the, uh, the Aryan Nations compound used to be. Um, then to go on to the third book, now, the, now you're going to have some fun because you're going to go into the eastern Kentucky Appalachian Mountains where the Pentecostal serpent handlers are. And we actually went to Jolo, West Virginia, to a serpent handling church. Uh, we worshipped with them that Sunday, and they took one of their snakes out for us to see, which was quite the adventure right there. And uh, they turned out to be incredibly lovely, gracious people. So they would next go into Jolo, West Virginia, and check out. There's several churches there that do that. Then the fourth church takes, or church, the fourth step takes place in the uh, Clearwater Valley of Idaho on the Nez Perce Indian Reservation, which is on the edge of the largest uh, wilderness area in the lower 40, 48. So it's millions of acres of wilderness area. And um, the Nez Perce tribe, which was a very, very um, historic tribe with a fascinating history. And if you hang around long enough, you'll be ready for the next book, which is not a Gwen Marcy, 
but it takes place on Kodiak Island, Alaska, which is the largest island, not nearly as big as you guys, of course, the largest uh, American island or second largest American island outside of one of the Hawaiian islands. And it's off the coast of, of Alaska. And it uh, talks about the Japanese invasion of the Aleutian Islands during World War II. So you might actually go on down and take a peek at uh, Atu and Kiska Islands and Kodiak Island, Alaska. Fantastic. And you went there for your research as well? We went to Kodiak. Um, we didn't, uh, Atu and Kiska are, there's something like 1,700 miles away, which in kilometers is five bajillion kilometers. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. I When I read this, about the serpent churches, I thought, oh, well, they must be underground. They, they couldn't possibly be just operating still today. So that's quite fascinating in itself that they are still just, you know, there and you're able to go and visit them. Yes. it's There are certain states that have outlawed um, the practice. Of Kentucky, which is where I placed the story, is the only state that outlawed handling serpents specifically in religious um, environments, which is sort of in our laws that's really pushing that First Amendment, um, the government staying out of the practice, of the free practice of religion. So um, I wanted to examine that. So I placed the story in Kentucky, but in West Virginia, it is perfectly legal to handle the snakes in church and to uh, practice their faith. So we went into West Virginia to study it. We placed it in Kentucky because of the way the, the laws were written. Sure, yeah. So turning to Carrie as a binge reader, you know, this uh, podcast is called The Joys of Binge Reading and was partly sparked by the growth in the number of series authors there are now. Have you ever been a bit of a binge reader yourself, either in the past or even in the present? And if so, have you got any recommendations for our listeners? Oh, yeah. Now, I haven't been binge reading lately because I read so many books for research, but um, I was addicted for years, I mean addicted totally, to Dick Francis, who uh, was a champion English steeplechase uh uh, writer for many, many years, and he writes about horses. And I grew up on a ranch with horses, and all of his stories are wonderful, and I adored them. And he passed away, and I just oh, couldn't believe it. So I binge read that. I binge read uh, the Sue Grafton series. As a child, I read all of the L. Frank Bond's Wizard of Oz. There's 15 in the series. I read all 15 of his books. Um, so yes, when I read and find an author that I love, um, I, I'm, I'm just totally crazed to get their next book and read it as fast as I can. And then I set it aside and maybe a year or so later, I go back and reread all the books, but I haven't had time to do that lately, but Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. It sounds like you are naturally when you want to relax a mystery reader. Yes. Mystery thriller. Um, growing up, I read about animals, of course, growing up with the dogs and with the horses and everything. So all of the, um, uh, um, uh, Terhune, um, Albert Payson Terhune, Collie stories, deeply 
affected me. I loved that yes. series. I owned a lot of the books. So, um, yes, I naturally read <laughs> Mystery Suspense. Not much romance, which is why that one kiss is so epic. <laughs> I do now read some of my suspense uh, partners, uh, Colleen Coble, Lynette Eason, and Ronnie Kindig. Uh, these are all dear friends of mine as well. So they send me their books and I send them mine. So I do read their books. I enjoy them immensely, but I usually don't have time to binge read them because they're much more prolific at writing than I am. <laughs> yeah. Carrie, we're coming to the end of our time together. So just circling around from the beginning and back to the end, at this stage in your career, if you were going to do it all again, is there anything that you would change? I probably would have started writing earlier. Um, I think that now, but on the other hand, the maturity that you get as you grow older and the patience that you develop, uh, I think that I might not have had it when I was younger. Plus I have, at my age, I'm 65. I have a lot of experiences now that I wouldn't have had when I was younger. So I don't know. I, my life was not particularly easy, but I certainly don't think I would change very much. I wish I hadn't lost my parents, but boy, there sure isn't a lot I would have changed, nor would there be a lot that I would do differently. Yeah, that's great. And what's next for Carrie, the writer? You talked about the uh, Alaska book. What's that one called? It's called uh, Formula of Deception. It comes out next August, and it's about a young lady named Murphy Anderson. And then I'm in the process. I'm here at this uh, rental house with a bunch of my fellow students, a bunch of gals that are wonderful and they're students and they're friends and they're dear people. So this week I was running my plot ideas past them and they immediately guessed who the bad guy was. So now I've got to go back and <laughs> redo my plotting because it was way too obvious to them. So I'll be working on that one. It will take place in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I hope to uh, weave in some of the native uh, belief systems and the native ideas into it. Or And or, uh, that's also the home of Sandia Labs and Los Alamos Nuclear Labs. So one or the other or both will find their way into the book. And are those both standalones or are they new starts to new series? At this point, they're standalones. Um, they wanted to have some standalones. And my thought is if people like the characters, they can always come back. I didn't kill anybody. Well, I killed a lot of people, actually. But, I mean, I didn't kill any main characters off. So um, we can still revive them, <laughs> give them something new to do. And without any spoilers, does this mean that Gwen is being retired? Oh, no. Gwen, Gwen's got a lot of work to do yet. Um, she's got to get that daughter out of in, in control, and she's got to get her into college. Um, her ex-husband's wife is expecting a baby, so there's a problem there. Um, she just got that new job, uh, and she does have Blake, the love interest, and she was kind of nasty to him last time. So we got to see what happens there because he may not wait around for her. <laughs> that sounds great. Look, where can people find your books and where can they connect with you online? The connecting online is very simple. And my webpage is just my name and it's Carrie, C-A-R-R-I-E, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, Parks, 
P-A-R-K-S dot com. I'm on Facebook, Carrie Stewart Parks author. I am, uh, I guess I'm on Twitter, but I really don't do much tweeting over there. Um, they can find the books at pretty much any Christian bookstore. They can order it on Amazon, Amazon New Zealand, I believe, Amazon Australia, or any of the Amazon uh, sites, Barnes and Nobles, um, Christian booksellers. Um, gosh, and they can even email me because I'm not this huge author that won't answer your emails. And that's easy too, because it's just my name, Carrie at StuartParks.com. Carrie, thank you. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you today. I, I do thank you for fiddling around to get the Skype going and all the very best with the rest of your career. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's been an absolute joy to talk with you. God bless and have a wonderful week. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.